Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Well, good evening, everyone. I'm Laura Coates, and this is CNN Tonight. And frankly, it's expected any day now. I'm talking about the release of the video that, even before any members of the public have even seen it, led to the firing of five Memphis police officers and two fire department employees. The question is, will it finally show us what happened when 29-year-old Tyree Nichols was pulled over by police and three days later was dead after what an independent autopsy calls extensive bleeding caused by a severe beating. And will anybody face any charges? Plus, some teachers in Florida locking down every book in their classroom libraries. Why? Out of fear they could face criminal charges if, get this, they let kids read books that haven't been pre-approved under some new state law. Yes, that's right. How, How books in a classroom could suddenly just break the law. And there was a speech on the House floor tonight like nothing that's, well, ever happened before. It was written by an artificial intelligence program. We told you about that last night, remember? It's called ChatGPT. And tonight, Congressman Jake Auchincloss will be here tell us how he used it to write his speech on the floor. We've got a lot to cover tonight, but I want to begin with the concerns and the anticipation over the release of the video of Tyree Nichols' encounter with police that ended three days later in his death and the firing of five officers and two firemen. That video might come out any day now. It's expected, in fact, to come out any day now. I want to bring in Memphis City Councilman J.B. Smiley to the conversation. Councilman, thank you for joining us. I, I say with a bit of a labored breathing, just thinking about this video coming out, because as it's been described at the press conference by the family and by the attorneys, what we are likely to see is a sustained three-minute-long beating of a man following a traffic stop. I wonder if you have any sense of when this video might really be released, and will it be released in full? Well, first of all, thank you for um, having me. And uh, you said it right. Any day now. Um, I know the council members, we're, we're slated to view um, the video footage in the next day or so, but we expected the video footage to come out sometime real soon. And in, in terms of you being able to see it, do you believe that the police officers or the union in particular might also be viewing it before the public sees it? Or will it be you at the same time, likely, as the general public, or a short lead time? Well, I believe that the council and along with our uh, co-counsel and our attorney will be viewing it at the same time to get a sense of, you know, what to expect. Uh, We've heard from Ben Crump, we've heard from um, his co-counsel as well about what what we should expect as it relates to the film, but 
it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough, especially when you consider, you know, the city of Memphis, a city of predominantly black folk who uh, don't suspect or expect to be subjected to this type of uh, scrutiny. It's going to be a tough, tough deal for us to watch. I've spent some time in Memphis. It is a beautiful place. The people warm. The idea that this is happening in your hometown now is devastating, I'm sure, for the community, but for the greater nation watching as well to think of what might come. And unfortunately, we have become accustomed collectively in this nation to encounters with officers that end in the death of a unarmed person, predominantly black and brown people. Is the city doing anything to prepare for what the reaction might be to the devastating viewing of the final moments of a human being. Absolutely. So we're preparing, um, preparing as it relates to what we can do to prevent this from happening ever again. We are drafting legislation to require more transparency so that we can have information related to excessive use complaints going forward and any officer associated with excessive use complaints. And in addition to that, we're trying to, you know, do what we can. We want people to protest because they should be angry. But we also want them to do it peacefully um, as possible, but to make sure that, you know, property and people um, in the city of Memphis are safe um, as we wait for the film to be released, the body cam footage to be released to the general public. And are you getting a, excuse me, go ahead. Excuse me, Councilman, I didn't mean to cut you off. I apologize for that. Are you getting a sense that there are any outside agitators? I know there has been a trend. Unfortunately, I remember my own hometown of St. Saint, of Saint Paul, Minnesota, and with the death of George Floyd and many other states around this country, there were oftentimes people who attempted to hijack an otherwise peaceful protest or tried to use it as a pretextual reason to, prevent, to advance their own agenda. Are you hearing anything about outside agitators that might be in the city of Memphis preparing to have their own version of a protest? Well, not necessarily outside protesters, but if you paid attention to our last council meeting, we had uh, dozens of community members who sat in at the council meeting and voiced their frustration with the process. They're demanding immediate release of the film. And, and I hope, you know, we, we essentially comply with the, the public's request. I think this type of information is public and we should do everything we can to give the people what they want, but also to make sure that the folks who live in the city of Memphis are safe in their homes. We have some sound from that very um, public hearing. Let's play a little bit of it from the audience's perspective as well. We pay for these cameras. We want to see what is going on. We want the footage now. We want to know, are we really employing people that think it's okay to beat the out of folks? City Councilman, I mean, people are angry, and I understand the reason why. You actually are planning to introduce, I understand, a motion that would require Memphis police to collect data regarding traffic stops and arrests and use of force and also complaints, um, obviously in the interest of transparency and in response to what constituents would like to need to have to feel safe. Why would that make a difference, do you believe, especially in this instance? Well, well if you know who the uh, bad actors are, you can weed them out before they ever find themselves in a situation that perpetuates such a, you know, a violent crime as this here. So my goal and the goal of the people in Memphis is to figure out what we can do to stop this type of actions going forward. And transparency is at the top of the list. 
we know the police officers were being constantly accused of excessive force uh, complaints, it's likely those officers are potentially perpetrators of incidents like this. Councilman Smiley, thank you so much for your time this evening. Thank you. Here with me in the studio, CNN senior law enforcement analyst and former FBI deputy director Andrew McCabe, Justin Hansford, a law professor at Howard University and executive director of the Thurgood Marshall Civil Rights Center, and Rayshawn Ray, Dr. Rayshawn Ray, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, is with us here as well. I, I want to get a sense, let me turn to you first, Dr. Ray, about this, because you, in the work that you've done as a sociologist and beyond, you've also work with police officers and training. And for every instance where you have Fourth Amendment constitutional violations that have been alleged and excessive force and duty to intervene and not doing so, it becomes an opportunity for training as well. Tell me, when you hear about this case, what is your reaction? Three minutes, allegedly, of a sustained beating following a traffic stop. Well, I mean, I think the first thing, people have to think about the length of that. I mean, as you were saying before, that is like the length of the time that a person will be in the ring and have five people beating on, beating on you. People have to think about that. In the research that we've done at the University of Maryland and the Brookings Institution, one of the things that we found is that black officers actually have similar attitudes and also similar behaviors as white officers. That's something that's very, very important for people. I think up to this point, a lot of the narratives that we've seen and heard in the cases that we've actually seen, oftentimes white officers on black victims. What we found in our research is that that behavior becomes pretty similar. So the fact that there are five, five black officers engaging in this, I think that's one thing that unnerves people. But in the research space, that's something that's very, very common to look at. I think the other thing that's important is the fact that they haven't released the body-worn camera footage. We heard from individuals at the city council meeting. There should probably be legislation put in place about the length of time that the city and the police department have to release that information. Other jurisdictions have that. But I'll give Memphis some credit. And that is part of a place that I call home. I went to to the University of Memphis. I'm from Tennessee. One of the things that we have to think about is this is happening. They fired the officers. They have showed the family the video and they're about to release it publicly. I think a lot of people think that criminal charges will be forthcoming. Professor, on that point, I mean, the idea of the the pacing and the chronology of events that we're seeing right now, um, we are seeing some development in terms of the transparency that really had been traditionally not provided in other cases. We remember how often people had to even say that this was not simply anecdotal. This is a part of a larger trend. And Dr. Rashawn Ray's point, I mean, blue trumps black oftentimes in terms of the way people think about this. But in terms of the, the potential criminal charges, walk me through your thinking. Do you think that there could be charges forthcoming? And what might be some of the defenses that would be raised in a case like this? Well, excuse me, I do, I do think that there are likely to be charges forthcoming, in part because of the swift firing of the officers. Um, you don't see the traditional statements from the police union mm-hmm. rallying behind the officers. Now, uh, from one perspective, you could look at the situation as a litmus test. We're looking at one of the first major national cases we've seen in many years where there are all black officers. So this is not a situation where it's the traditional question of black versus white. So we're looking at police violence being on trial as police violence itself, not as solely a racial issue in terms of racial conflict, but an issue of the the power that police have under our current legal 
uh, structure, whether some of those major Supreme Court cases, Wren, uh, Tennessee v. Garner, some of these cases that allow police to have uh, what Professor Paul Butler at Georgetown University Law Center has called superpowers, this ability to feel like they can use deadly force in all of these different situations, um, even in the context where police department uh, procedures may not seem to call for it. There's a separate question between police department procedures, which lead to firing, and criminal charges, which are going to be under the jurisdiction of the Supreme Court case law, yeah. and which, which will be the question which the prosecutors will look, like, look at going forward. I anticipate that based on the statements both from the federal prosecutor and uh, based on the fact that they were fired immediately, there seems to be an understanding based on the videos that they've seen that this goes above and beyond right. regular procedures. So there will likely be some sort of action in terms of what action we're not really sure. And I want to note, um, Andrew McCabe, you know, the idea here Within a month of the killing of George Floyd, Memphis actually changed part of its policies among their police and law enforcement about the duty to render care, the duty to um, intervene, which is, of course, one of the issues we've been talking about. You know, as the professor noted, the U.S. Attorney's Office in Tennessee is now involved. You've got the local uh, Memphis DA, Shelby County. Then you've got the DA I mean, you've got the U.S. attorney level. And of course, that means the FBI is now involved right. in a case like this. He mentioned the idea of the color of the officers. Civil rights laws talk about the color of law, meaning the badge itself could That's be right. enough. What will the FBI be doing in a case like this to either support or buttress the local investigation? So those investigations from your local prosecutors and detectives and the uh, U.S. attorney supported by FBI agents kind of go on at the same time in parallel tracks. And they can result in very uh, different um, you know, different results. You may see charges on the local level for things like homicide or assault or other offenses. On the federal side, what they'll be looking for are those color of law offenses. And that's essentially any person who uses their official position to deny someone a constitutionally protected right can be guilty of a federal crime. And those rights include, you know, Fourth Amendment violations, unreasonable search and seizure, um, excessive force, excessive of force, uh, uh, obstructing or denying or delaying medical care to someone who is in obvious need of medical care. So all of those factors could really become very um, uh, central to this issue. And is their role, real quick, is their role to be a backstop to local or are they working in tandem? They'll work in tandem. You know, there is a convenient uh, opportunity if the local charges, for whatever reason, are unsuccessful. That has no effect on the federal side. The federal charges can proceed separate sovereigns. You know, there's obviously not a double jeopardy problem there. But I would expect that they'll coordinate to some degree as well. So if the, if the FBI agents come across evidence that might be of use in the local prosecution, they will likely share that intelligence. We have a lot to get to and a lot more to learn about this very important issue. The video is still not out. The firings have happened. We've talked to the DA just yesterday about wanting to withhold the video until they had a chance to decide on charges. They may very well be likely. Stick around. Thank you so much, everyone. Also, we've got some teachers in Florida, and they are afraid that they could face criminal charges. Why? Well, because a new law makes it a crime. And by the way, a third-degree felony for them to use books in their classroom that don't adhere to the law. Now, some parents approve. Some are completely up in arms. We'll discuss it next. 
Teachers in at least one Florida district say they're closing up their class libraries or covering, actually covering books out of fear they could actually face felony charges. It's all because of a new Florida law that's taking effect. And CNN's Leila Santiago has the story. Behind the covered wall of paper in this Manatee County classroom, books. Teacher Don Falls told us he covered the bookshelves out of concern for a new state law that requires all books in classroom libraries to be approved or vetted by a media specialist or librarian that is trained by the state. We were instructed last week uh, that we were essentially had three choices uh, as far as our personal libraries that are in our classrooms. Uh, We could remove them completely, box them up. Uh, We could cover them up with paper or some sort of something, or uh, they could be entered into a database where the school district has all of the library books and all the other kinds of books. And if the book was in the, the system, then it could remain on the shelf open. Falls, who is part of a lawsuit against Governor Ron DeSantis regarding his Stop Woke Act, says it has all caused him and other teachers much fear and angst. But the district says it never instructed teachers to shut down classroom libraries. According to the school district, volunteers will be helping to catalog books in classroom libraries. If a book already has the green light, it can go right back on the shelf for students. But if it is not pre-approved, it must be vetted before a student can have access to it. We are going to make sure uh, that parents have a seat at the table uh, and that we protect, uh, protect their rights because nobody is more invested in the proper well-being of kids than the parents themselves. According to Florida's Department of Education, selection of library materials, which includes classroom libraries, must be free of pornography and material prohibited under state statute, suited to student needs and their ability to comprehend the material presented, appropriate for the grade level and age group for which the materials are used and made available. Violations can result in a third degree felony. This is us protecting the teachers, not saying we're banning books. During a school board meeting this week, Manatee County school officials acknowledged they don't know how long it'll take to verify all the books. In the meantime, the district said students have access to books in their school's main library, but the process has sparked confusion and high emotion. I would not suggest banning books. It's a slippery slope. This is good literature with value. Please do not ban books. During a school board meeting in Pinellas County, school officials confirmed they, too, are working to align policies with state requirements. School officials say a group of library media specialists reviewed 94 book titles over the summer. And that team did recommend 10 titles to be weeded out of our collections or moved to our adult-only resource library. There is appropriateness and there is inappropriateness. Where books are concerned, we have to really keep the minors in mind. You cannot substitute uh, adult supervision. You just cannot. Adult supervision, parents, whether it be a guardian or grandparent, have to be aware of what the child is being taught. While some parents praise what they call parents' rights at work, others worry it's a slippery slope. Anytime you restrict access to information, to knowledge, uh, it's censorship. Uh, there's, I don't think there's any other way to categorize it. 
And also part of the conversation in that Pinellas County School Board meeting, uh, you know, they talked about how there could be additional titles removed as part of this process and school officials made it very clear that they will err on the side of caution. School board members also brought up another challenge, how to define age appropriate when vetting these reading materials. I reached out to the governor's office and the Florida Department of Education, but I haven't received a response to that question. Laura? Layla, thank you so much. And how big will the impact of this policy actually be? Not just on the teachers, but also, of course, on the children. Well, we have two educators in Florida joining me to discuss next. You just heard from teachers worried that the books in their classroom shelves could cause them to run afoul of new Florida laws. They actually fear they could even face criminal charges. Joining me now to discuss, Andrew Spar, president of the Florida Education Association, and Pat Barber, president of the Manatee Education Association. I'm glad to have you both here to bring some further clarity to what's going on, if, if it can be found. I want to begin with you here, um, Andrew, because I'm wondering who should get to decide the types of books that are in teachers' classrooms? So, you know, teachers are trained professionals. Uh, they know about reading. They know about what excites kids about reading. They understand the importance of kids seeing themselves in the books they are reading. And, of course, parents and teachers have a sacred bond. We work together all the time. I'm a parent. I'm a teacher. As a parent, I go to open house at the beginning of the year. I know what curriculum is. I see the teacher's classrooms. I am in regular communication with my daughter's teachers. That's what we do. And so I think this idea and what we're seeing in Florida right now, quite honestly, in a county near Jacksonville, Clay County, there was a parent who's actually committed, not a parent, I'm sorry, an, a citizen who's committed to getting 3,200 books removed from the schools and doesn't have any kids in the school system. So this isn't about parents. This is about someone trying to impose ideology in our school and politics in our schools. And it's interfering with the importance of reading for kids. Pat, I want to bring you in here because it is striking to many to hear that it's not just parents who are even involved in the conversation, but those who are not immediate stakeholders, although obviously the greater community could certainly say that by virtue of being a part of the community, they are a stakeholder. But they're not parents of kids in this school that have a direct connection to this. And I want to just put up on the screen for a second, Pat, um, the, the books under the Florida law, what the requirements are right now so the audience can see. Books must be free of pornography and other materials prohibited under Florida law, suited to students' needs and their ability to comprehend the material, and appropriate for their grade level and age group. Um, some of these seem obviously like a no-brainer, the idea of free from pornography, although the Supreme Court has trouble identifying it unless they actually see it. But the idea here, Pat, of where things stand, is this just a very subjective notion that just is going to be classroom by classroom with no universal standard to guide? <laughs> Um, I don't think it's going to be classroom by classroom in Manatee County, but it is a very subjective standard when it comes to a citizen of Manatee County looking at books and imposing their viewpoint according to the standards that are in the law. Um, teachers are trained professionals. They do know what's age appropriate and 
teachers and parents work together all the time to determine what a parent finds acceptable for his or her own child as far as reading material. I do wonder, Pat, in the conversation um, about parental rights, which obviously is coming up more and more, and I'm a parent of school-age children, elementary school to be specific, I certainly would like to be able to weigh in and be a part of and have this symbiotic relationship with the school. But I also, I personally feel, and I think many others do, that parental rights is not exactly the same thing as parental dictation and determining. And some parents would like to defer to the teachers to decide for themselves what would be appropriate in their classrooms. Does this law remove that opportunity in your mind from the teachers being able to decide even when parents want to defer to a teacher? It removes the, it interrupts the conversation. I wouldn't say it necessarily removes it, but it definitely circumvents and interrupts that conversation because it inserts people other than the parents into that conversation. And it it implies that parents didn't already have rights. It's a good point, Parents Angela. have always had rights. Certainly. I didn't mean to cut you off, Pat, but that's a, that's a very astute point. And, Andrew, I want you to respond to it because you do see this emergence of this thought of it's almost like this is a novelty. A, a parent finally has rights in a classroom. And certainly we have the ability to speak up. And I, but I really do wonder about this issue of parental rights as a talking point as opposed to what actually happens in the classrooms, to Pat's point. And really what it's doing to the morale of teachers. I mean, teachers are being asked to do everything, including, sadly, trying to keep students safe in a world of gun violence. And it's a horrible tragedy to even think about that. And now the idea of being told they have to cover up books and they have to have that scrutiny. What is that doing to morale? It's killing morale. Let me let me tell you a story of a media specialist, a librarian in Clay County, Florida, who who told me the other day how she had a student with special needs who was coming into the library uh, last year every other week to read books about cars. This is a high school student who struggles uh, academically, uh, has special needs and and was reading about cars. And she was told this year she couldn't buy any new books for the media center until the state implemented this new law and did a training on it. And so this kid kept coming to the media center saying, do we have a new book about cars every two weeks? And she was almost in tears telling the story of how she had to keep saying to the child, no, unfortunately I can't get new books. As a parent, that breaks my heart because as a parent, I want my kid to be excited about reading, to be excited about learning, to be a child uh, in school. You know, you talked about children in elementary schools. Go into any elementary teacher's classroom. They have hundreds of books they've purchased themselves with their own money to create this classroom library to make sure that every kid, every kid can find a book they're excited about, that they read about. And now we're hearing about people saying they don't want books Look, look at the books that they're talking about. They're talking about books that talk about families who may be different from their own families. They're talking about books that deal with race and, and um, ethnicity. They're talking about books from other, that talk about other countries. These are books that so many kids connect to. And there are people outside the school system. I really want to underscore that. Outside the school system saying we're not going to allow uh, these books to be in our schools. They're taking away 
parents' rights. The rights for me as a parent, for you as a parent, to, to have our kid be excited about reading. And there is exposure of reading and what it, what it means and how it generates thoughts. And I just think about with my own kids, how excited they are for the book fair every single semester about what might be there. Are they going to walk in the library next time and it'll be cloaked in, in big curtains about the sections they can actually see? I encourage avid readers. This really is a very disheartening notion. I wonder how this will end up. Andrew Spar, Patricia Barber, thank you for your time this evening. I appreciate it. Thanks for having thank us. Thank you. A member of Congress calling on lawmakers to address the challenges presented by artificial intelligence. And he did it by using the AI's own words. Congressman Jake Auchincloss made history today when he delivered a speech on the House floor. But can you guess who wrote it? Listen. Mr. Speaker, I stand here today because I am planning to reintroduce the United States-Israel Artificial Intelligence Center Act, a bipartisan piece of legislation that will cement a mutually beneficial partnership between the United States and Israel on artificial intelligence research. This is a critical step forward in an era where AI and its implications are taking center stage in public discourse. Sounds totally legit, right? But what you just heard was actually written entirely by ChatGPT, a text-based artificial intelligence Congressman Auchincloss joins me now. Congressman, I mean, it's, a, it's interesting you chose to have that speech written by artificial intelligence. What was your motivation? Good to be with you. Uh, I worked in tech for a number of years. I'm one of the youngest parents in Congress. This technology, I know, is going to be part of my career for decades to come. And it could be a general purpose technology for my children, meaning that in any sector in which they chose to work, it would be a key tool that they would need to use. And I wanted to spotlight this for Congress so that we have a debate now about purposeful policy for AI and not be 10 years behind the ball like I think a lot of policy was for social media. It certainly, and we think about the way in which you've heard congressional hearings when they're trying to grab their arms around a problem that really the train has left the station. With this um, moment in time, there is an opportunity to regulate or to course correct before it is derailed in some way. But are there legitimate concerns right now that it has the potential to be harmful? There are. And I think we got to do two things to try to counteract any kind of dystopian future. One is we need more competition. Right now, the cutting edge of AI is happening in California through a consortium of big tech companies, Microsoft first and foremost, but Meta and Alphabet have their own internal AI research units as well. Because of their cloud computing power, because of the quality and quantity of data that they have, because of the engineers that they are able to attract, they do the cutting edge work. I think that this technology should be available to universities, to nonprofits, to public officials, uh, to small companies, so that everybody can have a hand in shaping this, so that it works for everybody. Uh, And then also, we need to start having uh, substantive conversations in Congress and at the administration level, which they are, about ensuring that this is a tool, not a master. This is meant to amplify human creativity and productivity. It should not be a substitute. And we should not allow it to create economic or social conditions that 10 years from now we look back on and say, this isn't what we wanted. Because I think a lot of people have that sense with social media. These companies started small, they started scrappy. And then everyone looked around a decade later, they were worth $2 trillion and had warped a lot of the conversation that we valued. 
We are in a very much a disinformation age, unfortunately. And so there's obviously the concerns about the potential for deep fakes, the idea of having it be amplifying the lies or distorting realities. And there was an interesting moment. It's been talked about as not being able to hypothesize on things. But I actually asked it to model a hypothetical debate between President Biden and the former President Trump, who, of course, is running for office again on climate change. Listen to what it actually said. It, this is what it generated. It said, President Biden says climate change is an existential threat to our planet, and we must take immediate action to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and transition to clean energy sources. My administration is committed to rejoining the Paris Climate Agreement, investing in renewable energy, and implementing policies to decrease carbon emissions. Conversely, it, it quotes um, a hypothetical President Trump saying climate change is a hoax perpetrated, perpetrated by China and other countries to harm the American economy. The Paris Climate Agreement is a bad deal for America and would cripple our industries. We should focus on promoting American energy independence and protecting American jobs. I mean, it's an emulation, but based on what it's culled from the Internet, likely close to what's been said before. So I wonder, are you concerned about speech generation as sort of the next frontier and people knowing how much they value what's written and what's out there will take this as truth? Speech generation, and I should add video generation Mm. as well, deep fake videos. One example of that, the compliment that you just gave, people can Google right now a speech by Richard Nixon if the moon landing had failed because they had that speech drafted in that eventuality. Obviously it didn't, so they never delivered it, but they were able to take footage of President Nixon giving other speeches. They were able to feed in that text and you've got President Nixon delivering a speech as though the moon landing had crashed instead. And you can extrapolate that to a hundred other scenarios. The good news here is that the same technology that can generate those deep fakes, either in speech or in video, can also be used to discern and flag those deep fakes as being misinformation. I think. Another area where we have this kind of pro and con area that we should wrestle with is education. Mm. We're already seeing universities uh, and K-12 educators worrying about plagiarism uh, or about students not doing their own work. And clearly, administrators are going to have to put in safeguards for that. There's also the potential, though, that AI could do personalized tutoring at scale for kids who learn differently, for kids who are ahead or behind of the curriculum, to give superpowers to teachers. Uh, I find that exciting. But that pro and con is going to require very nuanced public debate. It's got to start now. certainly does. I'm glad to have it here. Thank you, Congressman Auchincloss, for stopping by. Good evening. Well, everyone, first it was a leopard. Then it was the monkeys. Now apparently it's a vulture. Several mysterious incidents involving animals at their habitats at the Dallas Zoo. And the zoo rightfully is suspicious. So what is going on? There's a mystery at the Dallas Zoo, a series of incidents where someone may be tampering with the animals there. And while zoo officials and Dallas police investigate, we're learning that an endangered vulture named Pin was found dead in its habitat on Saturday. Officials say an unusual wound and injuries indicate that it did not die of natural causes. Recall that nearly two weeks ago, a clouded leopard got out of its enclosure after someone apparently cut the fencing. Now, fortunately, it was recaptured and unharmed. 
Zoo officials are also discovering that someone appears to have tampered with the Langer monkey pen, but none of the monkeys got out. A lot to discuss tonight with wildlife biologist Jeff Corwin, host of Wildlife Nation. Jeff, I'm so glad that you're here, but man, this is getting stranger by the moment. And now there is an animal that apparently did not die of natural causes. Is there any indication of what is going on at the Dallas Zoo? Hey, good evening, Laura. Yes, it's a tragic, no longer coincidental, and likely criminal mystery here. So you're looking at the lapid-faced vulture right there. There's a photograph of this bird. And, you know, it has two distinctions for me. First of all, as you can see, as vultures go, it is incredibly fetching. It's one of the most beautiful vulture species. But also, as you highlighted, it's one of the most endangered. There's only about six maybe 8,000 of these vultures surviving on our planet. And the Dallas Zoo, along with the LA Zoo, and other members of the American zoological community are critical in the future survival of this species. So the loss of one of these lapid-faced vultures is incredibly tragic for the species. This is apparently, it was a 35-year-old vulture at that. And as you note, when we think about the idea of some of the foundational purposes of zoos, it's about the conservationism. It's about trying to ensure that they can reintroduce or obviously maintain and preserve species and, um, and have the field of study. The idea here that this type of species has now been targeted in connection with also the idea of the monkey, um, the idea of, of course, the clouded leopard. I mean, the pattern here is quite stunning. Are the other animals that have been having suspicious behavior surrounding them, are those equally endangered? Well, you know, we shall see. I mean, I know the Dallas Zoo is stepping up along with their partners Uh, with the police community in Dallas to try to find out who's doing this, this vandalism, this criminal behavior. Is it some sort of pathos that's driving this? Is it a, is it some sort of messaging that's happening behind this? But whatever is causing this, it's a really big deal in the zoological community. As far as I'm concerned, every enclosure, the back, the front needs to have a camera on it, a digital telecam that's capturing images The security needs to be beefed up as much as it can because the lives of these species are at stake. You're talking about the lapid-faced vulture. This is a creature that's not only critically endangered, but it's an animal that's long-lived. They can live 50, 60 years. They're one of the most resilient and hardy species of birds in the planet, but yet it can't survive living in Dallas. So something is wrong here, and they need to get to the bottom of who's doing this and why and preventing it in the future. Absolutely, and I understand as well that as a result of what's happened, these series of incidents, zoo officials are having to try to take precautionary measures to protect the different wildlife, which means that they are going to have a different quality of life and the ability of freedom that they might have to be outside of their enclosures in some points after hours of the uh, zoo's normal hours and beyond. Are we going to see now the zoo officials having to take precautions that reduce the quality of life even more for these zoo animals? Well, I don't think the the Dallas Zoo or any North American zoo that's a member of the AZA is going to do anything 
to reduce the quality of existence for these animals. They do a lot of work in ensuring that they have an environmental quality with lots of stimulation to keep them thriving in this human care environment. So that's not going to change. You're already dealing with animals that require a tremendous amount of security. So they have their enclosures, they have their entrances and exits within their paddocks to ensure that the, the, the zookeepers can have access to these animals in a safe manner. So those protocols already exist. The problem is, is someone is violating that protocol. Um, you know, you, you have the concept of you can't prevent a thief, but you can keep an honest man honest. I think they're keeping the honest folks honest with the messaging, with the appropriate security. But something outside of those lines is getting in, wreaking havoc on one of the greatest zoos in North America. So I don't think there's going to be a change in the quality of life of animals, but I think what will happen is an increase in security. We've noticed, uh, Laura, a lot of changes in the last 10 years with social media where people are pushing the boundaries, they're pushing the edges. We see that in national parks with people approaching bison and bison and other animals getting caught. We see that in zoos like this, where people wanting that moment, they're willing to take a risk for themselves and the animals for social media, for getting the, the, the increases of likes. But this is different. Someone is being incredibly nefarious and uh, the zoo is going to pay the price for this and the animals are paying the price for this and it needs to stop. Absolutely. And as I repeat, I mean, found dead, um, not appearing at natural causes, a suspicious type of wound. Hope they get to the bottom of this before additional animals are in danger. Yeah, eventually, Laura, folks like this, they, they fall prey to their hubris and they get caught. Unfortunately, we need, a, we need to make sure that happens before we lose any more animals. Hey, you're talking to a prosecutor about that. I'm telling you, I wonder what they will try to do and what will happen eventually. Jeff Corwin, thank you so much for bringing some better context to this. It's really important. There are more questions tonight for Congressman George Santos. Now it's about personal loans he said he made to his campaign. I'll bring you the details next. There are new questions tonight about the source of substantial loans to Congressman George Santos's campaign. The embattled Republican, who's been caught in a web of lies, as you know, previously claimed he made personal loans to his campaign totaling more than $700,000. But in new filings with the Federal Election Commission, boxes indicating that loans of $500,000 and $125,000 had come from personal funds, well, those were left unmarked. I want to turn now right away to CNN political commentators Jonah Goldberg and Ashley Allison and national politics reporter Eva McKend. Eva, let me begin with you here about these new questions around these loans. Um, What are you learning about the loans he allegedly gave to his own campaign? Yeah, Laura, so the broad outlines uh, of the story that you mentioned, that is absolutely correct. He previously said that he personally loaned his campaign $700,000. That was in the filing. He also has reiterated this. You know, he went on that podcast with Congressman Matt Gates not too long ago and suggested that this came from his personal wealth. In these amended filings, he's now changing his story, the boxes to indicate that these are personal funds 
are now not checked. But also really crucially here, Laura, he's still listed uh, as a source of the loan elsewhere in the filings. So, you know, I don't know if confusion is the point here, but that is certainly the outcome. Our colleague Manu Raju trying to get some answers from him today. Take a listen. Why did you amend your FEC report to say five hundred thousand? Let's let's make it very clear. I don't amend anything. I don't touch any of my FEC stuff. Right? So don't be disingenuous and report that I did because you know that every campaign hires fiduciary. So I'm not aware of that answer. And we'll have an answer for the press regarding the amendment from yesterday. So this is something that he often says, that he will have an answer for the press. And then you can hear him there trying to push this off on financial folks. Well, I don't know anything about this. And then also another sort of curious component to this today. In new filings today, campaign officials listed Thomas Datweiler as the treasurer of several of Santos's committees. Well, CNN reached out to him and this man says, listen, I spoke with them. They asked me to come on as the treasurer, but I declined. But he is still listed on these new filings as the treasurer. He's not the treasurer, according to um, his attorney. Jonah, how impactful is this? I mean, at a broader, taking a step back, obviously, I think the American electorate obviously can understand quite easily the idea of somebody lying, the idea of a resume, the idea of um, conversations around a GoFundMe. But the idea of FEC filings... I wonder if that translates in the same way. What do you think? Yeah, look, I, I, I've long thought that, look, in, in in a properly ordered world, he would have he would have had shame and resigned, or he would have been forced out. Those things aren't happening. That's not the world we live in. The way, if you're if you're thinking he's going to leave Congress within before the end of his term, it's going to have to be something like this, where they're pulling on a thread. It looks like it's possible that this included forging illegally forging someone else's electronic signature for this treasurer because the treasurer, this guy says, I didn't sign that, and, but they, someone else claimed that it was, it was e-signed, which is like a, a crime. And the it lawyer just, in me says, allegedly. Allegedly. Go ahead, right. but, go. But, but fair enough. But my point is, is like, this is the only thing that is going to get Kevin McCarthy to change his position, which is that he's elected, he hasn't broken any laws, all he is is a big fat liar, and we need his fourth vote and the Republican conference. And the thing that can change that zeitgeist is evidence of an actual crime, because that's the only thing that's ever gotten anybody expelled from Congress except for treason or supporting the Confederacy. And to that point, Ashley, I mean, there is no mechanism to remove other than obviously the electorate. There is the idea of shame, which, I mean, okay, put that put that aside. Shame is not necessarily a, a big um, motivating factor we see. Uh, but the idea of that being something that could, on the one hand, absolve and relieve McCarthy of having to do what is not the standard, but also try to preserve some semblance of integrity about the GOP more broadly. Is this a possible vehicle? And and again, this is all, we don't know all the answers. It is speculative at this point still until we have the complete story. Is this the mechanism you think might be used? Perhaps. I I don't think Kevin McCarthy wants to lose this seat. Uh, He wishes this story just goes away. I find it not comical, but questionable that it's don't be disingenuous in your reporting. Well, don't be disingenuous and a liar as a candidate, um, George to George Santos. I don't think that the House Republicans are going to try and get Santos to resign. I think if criminal charges are brought, he's prosecuted, which it seems like, it, you know, he just keeps lying so much that he's going to get caught on something at some point that that might be the out. But unfortunately... 
lying is not enough anymore for a sitting congressman. Well, actually, on that point, I mean, you did have a comment from um, Kevin McCarthy, who was reporting that, um, and this is CNN reporting, that Leader McCarthy talked about Santos in a closed conference meeting today. And Eva, he said there was a difference between lying and committing a crime, and then says the latter causes you to lose a committee spot. Is that it? That's the only bar? I mean, that has been his central argument all along. He pretty much has has been saying variations of this for the past few weeks, that it it takes a really high bar to uh, call for someone's removal, that ultimately you should listen to the voters in this in his district who elected him. He's certainly Speaker McCarthy not listening to them now because many of those voters are saying, had they know uh, known about the real George Santos, if that's, you know, his true name, (laughs) then they would not they would wouldn't have supported him. Um, Also, I spoke with a campaign uh, legal uh, expert, uh, a campaign finance expert today, and he told me, you know, this is either sloppy bookkeeping, he's never seen anything like it, or clearly uh, some illegal activity. Well, we will see which one it is, but maybe he'll, he'll give us an answer on that. That was the standard phrase, right? We'll see what happens in that case. Also, stick around, panel, please, I'm going to come back. But also, George Santos, he actually hosted a business dinner back in November of 2020 that was attended by Christian Lopez and his attorney, Tiffany Bogosian, first reported by The Washington Post. Now, Santos, if you remember, was working for Harbor City Capital, which is a Florida-based investment firm. And Lopez says he was pitching him to invest $300,000, but Lopez declined. Now, the Securities and Exchange Commission later accused the firm of being a Ponzi scheme. Now, Santos denied any knowledge, but Tiffany Bogosian and Christian Lopez join me now to discuss. I want to begin with you and welcome to the program. Christian, let me begin with you here on this, because you know, according to the reporting, Santos brought you to a restaurant in Queens, a fancy restaurant in Queens, back in November of 2020. He wanted you to invest about $300,000. Can you tell us what happened in that instance? Yeah, he was trying to pitch me some ideas that he could, I put you, I basically give him 300000 and then he gives me $3,000 every two to three weeks and things like that, which wasn't really making any sense to me, honestly. You describe a situation out of a scene of, from, from Goodfellas. Tell me about yes, what ma'am. you mean. Yeah, because we went into this restaurant. We was greeted very, very good. Like, we was family. And I've never stepped foot in there in my life. Neither has my lawyer or my girlfriend. So when we go in there, we get treated. We go to the second floor. And then there's just a big room with one table, a butler, and George Santos. And then right then and there, I was just like, what? Like, this is different. This is this is nice. Like, wow. I've never been treated this nice before, but I was just like, wow, let's see what's going on here. So we further went in. We ordered some food. Then after that, he got to talking about the business. And that's where I just started, like, looking at it all wrong right there. That's where flags started coming up, and I was just like, it makes no sense. What were those red flags that made you suspicious about this venture? Basically, he was saying... The worst thing you can say to anybody is that you give this 300000 but you're not allowed to know what you're investing into. So pretty much I give the money to him, and I don't know if he's making bombs. I don't know drugs. I don't know where he's investing this money to. I don't know where he's sending it to. Like He was just like, that has nothing to do with you. Like All you need to do is just give me the money, and then every two to three weeks, I'll give you 
$3,000. And I was just like, how? Like, how does this make any sense? This doesn't, this doesn't sound right. And then What's he tried to use yeah. a that he, he was he was down with Trump and his and his peoples and all those other things and they're gonna do good and they're gonna make big moves and you know things like that. Well I wanna bring you in here, Tiffany, and, and we should note that the SEC is looking into it as a Ponzi scheme, not knowing the nature, of course, of any criminal activity that is being suggested um, in the sense of what was being purchased, what the money would be going for. And we will note, of course, that we did reach out to George Santos for comment and did not receive it in this instance. But Tiffany, you know Santos, and you actually agreed to dinner. You were a bit of a liaison between the two. <laughs> you had a feeling right away, though, this could be a scam. What set off the alarm bells for you? Unfortunately, I was the intermediary between uh, Christian and George. You know, I regret that, you know, a thousand percent. But thankfully, it didn't go further um, than it did. But essentially, um, I knew George from junior high school. He went to junior high school with me. We attended IS 125 in Sunnyside, Queens. Um, After junior high school, we kind of lost touch and we uh, reacquainted ourselves in or about 2019, um, this case, Christian's case occurred in 2018, but by the time it came to settlement it was 2020. And as it got closer to settlement, I mean, this was, you know, my first large case out of law school on my own. Um, and I was excited about it and I was telling everybody and, you know, I worked in the past with different annuity companies. So that's what George kind of represented. As far as Harbor City Capital, which I find so ironic that he says fake news, fake media, disingenuous reporting. Um, He never said anything about Harbor City Capital at that dinner. He led us to believe and led Christian to believe and led me to believe that at the time he worked for Goldman Sachs and he was a personal banker on behalf of Goldman Sachs and all his representations were on behalf of Goldman Sachs. In fact, uh, after Christian, I mean, so the red flags came up as far as you don't know what you're investing in. For me, the red flags came up immediately when I hear $3,000 a month in interest on an investment. I mean, I've worked with several annuity companies with large, um, investments, $3,000 a month is unheard of anywhere, anywhere. So, I mean, that was a huge red flag. And then, you know, thereafter he followed up with Christian sending confidential memorandums again from Harbor city capital, but was acting at the dinner and everything as if he was on behalf of Goldman Sachs. He made all these representations on, you know, as he was an employee of Goldman Sachs. And in fact, when Christian declined to invest, he essentially called me and was very upset. I mean, that was the last conversation that we had over the phone uh, where he said he was very upset. He used disbursements from Goldman Sachs. It was a company card. Um, And I said, listen, this is the nature of your business. Clients have the right to choose or not choose to invest with you. He just decided to forego it. Wow. And that was that. And essentially, I mean, he never spoke to me after that. And then when all these lies were exposed and I heard that he never worked for Goldman Sachs or Citigroup or anything like that, I was beyond belief because now you're thinking somebody's going into their own pockets to disperse this kind of money to, you know, create all these bells and whistles to essentially take advantage. I mean, he was 
essentially going to take that money and, yeah, and, and make off with it, essentially. I mean, yeah. at one point, I would say, uh, sorry, I'm okay, but at one point, all three of us just shook our, we just shaking our head during, throughout this story, just thinking about that, that this is that what you're describing and what you're telling here, and especially it's not in a vacuum, right? We're talking about this is a sitting member of Congress. Thank you so much, all of you, for joining us today. I appreciate it. Thank, Thank you, guys. Have Thank a great you. night. Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, there are more disturbing details in the already shocking story of a teacher allegedly shot by a six-year-old student. Teacher's lawyer now claims the school was warned not once, not even twice, but three times the actual day of the shooting that the child had allegedly had a gun on him. And we also have new and more developments on all of this next. The Newport News School Board voting to cut ties with their superintendent almost three weeks after a six-year-old allegedly shot a teacher in the district. The decision coming the same day that the assistant principal in the elementary school resigned. And we're learning that the teacher who was shot is planning to sue the school district. Abby Zwerner's lawyer claims school officials were warned three times the day of the shooting that the child had a gun. When a fourth employee who heard about the danger asked the administrator for permission to search the boy, he was denied. Tragically, almost an hour later, violence struck Richnack Elementary School. I'm back now with Jonah Goldberg and Ashley Allison, and we're joined by Tia Mitchell as well, Washington correspondent for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I mean, just first of all, this story is stunning for a lot of different reasons. The idea that a six-year-old child is allegedly shot a teacher, hearing about the fact that she survived it, that she was able to get her students to safety, I mean, thank goodness. But the lawyer for the teacher laying out today the different moments in time when it could have been prevented, perhaps? I mean, why did the school not react? What are we learning? Yeah, I think the school still has a lot of questions to answer on. After all these warnings, they still didn't find the gun on the student. They had another student saying that he flashed the gun. They had um, school, other teachers saying, you know, search him. We hear he has a gun. They searched his backpack. But when uh, it was said that he probably had the gun in his pockets, they didn't have permission to search the student himself. So that leaves a lot of questions about not listening to the warning signs of an imminent threat. You know, even if they didn't think the student would actually point the gun at the teacher, which he did, obviously. But there are so many other ways that a gun in possession of a six-year-old is not a smart thing. He could have shot himself. He could have shot another student, even accidentally. So those are the issues that I think are really causing questions about the administrators at the school and the decisions they made that day. It's an important point. And again, there was about 20 years ago, there was the Washington Post feature story about a six-year-old girl who was killed by another student. I believe it was in Michigan. Um, Just a real tragedy to think about. And the prosecutor in the case trying to figure out what can be done when you have a six-year-old assailant, essentially. Um, But here, the idea of who to hold to account, particularly when you've got the challenge of the youth of the offender, alleged offender in this instance, um, you know, is it the right call when you think about the superintendent or the idea of 
who ought to be fired or resign, um, you get the sense of something has to be done. Is this the right course correction? Look, I used to be in a classroom. The furthest thing removed from me on a day-to-day basis was the superintendent of the schools. If we were facing an imminent threat, we would not have taken the time to call the superintendent. Um, So I I think if the procedures of the school district are uh, inadequate, that would be a reason why the superintendent would fall, would take some blame. Like, you aren't allowed to search a a student if there's, even if there is a threat. I think the person who was responsible once those threats were raised and they took no action, they there is some re, they have to face some type of repercussions. This is a terrible scenario. I, I mean, I don't know. I, I would hope that someone comes to me and said a six year old had a gun. I would be like, oh, you know, you don't think a six year old has a gun. But in this day and age, you cannot take uh, something like that lightly. And so somebody has to pay um, for a failed protocol and procedures being implemented that day. And of course, the teacher is paying the price in part, having been shot. But, you know, this is actually, Jonah, the fourth school shooting involving um, and by someone as young as six since 1970. Given the numbers we have in gun violence overall, some might sort of scoff at that number. But this is significant. We're talking about a six-year-old. How do you protect elementary schools in the conversations? And I realize that there's no simple answer, but without having more draconian measures that undermine what the school experience parents want their children to have could be. Yeah, I, I, look, I mean, you said this, the sixth or fourth one since 1970? The fourth since 1970. So of, talk- a, of a six-year-old. Right, so, but you're talking about out of a population of probably, over time, 80, 100 million kids have gone through schools since 1970. At the far right tail of distribution, when you have these horrible incidents, they're not I, they're not st- unique, but they're I, they're rare. It is really hard to extrapolate like big unifying rules for everybody. I have like if I were one of the parents, I would want to be on a jihad about people getting fired. I would not be subtle about it. I would just be so angry and so terrified for my kids. Um, I have, but at the same time, to your point, it's like hard cases make for bad law. The idea is you know, a six-year-old and he's packing heat and they don't find it in his backpack and they don't think the le- they and they don't search him for it. Yeah, the teacher is absolutely right to sue. Um, it sounds like she's got a good case and it sounds like they need to figure out a whole bunch of new procedures and some heads are going to roll and some lessons are going to be learned from this. But let's you know also have some sympathy for people who like in real life were they, they just thought this was outside the realm of their imagination and they responded badly. But not like monsters, right? I mean, this was just a horrible, horrible situation. And sadly, hopefully we'll have some lessons learned and some best practices that come out of it. But I, I, don't, I, I don't know what they could be. You know, a lot of us are trying to figure out and grapple with this very question that I posed. And there's, if there were a simple answer, we'd already have deterrence right. 100%. But we'll follow this as well, everyone. Stick around because, well, it's called the doomsday clock. Have you heard of this? And of course, it's as close to midnight as it's ever gotten. So what does that mean exactly? Well, spoiler alert, it ain't good. We'll explain next. All right, so check this out, right? The Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists making a historic announcement about the well-known doomsday clock. We moved the clock forward the closest it has ever been to midnight. It is now 
90 seconds to midnight. So the doomsday clock started way back in 1947. The artist saying that he set the original clock at seven minutes to midnight because it looked good to his eye. Now, over the years, the Bulletin Science and Security Board has met to discuss current events and whether the clock needs to be reset. The furthest the clock has been away from midnight was 17 minutes. That was back in 1991 after George H.W. Bush's administration signed the Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty with the Soviet Union. And as I said a few moments ago, the closest the clock has been to midnight is right now. The hand just 90 seconds away. The Bulletin citing multiple factors for why they moved this clock forward. They include Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the continuing threats posed by climate change, and also online disinformation. The clock has actually never reached midnight, but if it does, the Bulletin's president and CEO says it will mean there's been some event that's led to total annihilation. I want to bring back in Jonah Goldberg, Ashley Allison, and Tia Mitchell. Jonah, you're smiling. Tell yeah, me why. I, I, just, I, I don't want to be the bummer here, but I think... <laughs> in a doomsday clock segment? Well, I, think the, I think the doomsday <laughs> clock has, has been hot garbage for decades. Mm-hmm. It's a publicity stunt. Like, I live in think tank world. I'm at the American Enterprise Institute. I know lots of people in think tank world. The Bulletin of Atomic Scientists board are no more expert at global affairs than a half dozen other think tanks and universities that you have as guests bring experts on here all the time. Um, we have been minute, hundreds of seconds from midnight for 70 years, according to these people. Maybe they got to check their math a little bit. It is, and my biggest problem with it is historically, this whole thing has always been a propaganda tool to put pressure on Western governments to sort of buy into certain arms control kind of things. It has no effect on the Soviet Union or on communist China. It is purely to play on Western governments and Western fears. And uh, I just don't give it any credibility at all. Is it working? I mean, is is it the propaganda that Jonah talks about or or gimmick? Or is it the larger point of alerting people that we're always on the brink? We've heard discussions about being on the brink of nuclear war, on the brink of other things, on the brink of a variety of things. Is this the sort of illustration of what is a political talking point about being on the brink? I mean, I didn't need the doomsday clock folks to tell me we were on the brink. I don't know about you. Uh, I mean, you know, I go back to Y2K when everything was like, you know, was going to explode and the world was going to fall apart and we were going to feel like we were back in like the 1900s. Um, We just went through a pandemic that shut the world down in ways that we thought we would never see in our lifetime. Um, the United States Capitol was under attack and an insurrection happened in the home, in the land of the free. I mean, uh, we might have fought on our debt. We had the largest <laughs> racial uprising in the world uh, the summer of 2020 um, and policy change didn't happen. Uh, it, it feels like we are on the brink of disaster over and over again. And so I don't think and then there are everyday Americans that can barely afford the cost of eggs. Um, and so I think. They aren't paying attention to this clock. Mm-hmm. I certainly am not. Um, and unfortunately, it, is, it feels a little gloom and doom all the time in America and across the globe. Tia, what do you think? I mean, are we, we, we are on the brink, frankly, of having a former president back on Facebook and Instagram. Is that closer to the doomsday? I mean, that, that <laughs> could definitely contribute to it because we know that when Trump was president, some of the things he said on social media could have 
caused the war, you know, that we know that his own advisors were nervous about him causing nuclear war by being careless with his words or his actions. Um, you know, I'll be the one to kind of stick up for the doomsday clock. <laughs> you know, I, I, I can't say that it resonated very deeply with me. I don't think most Americans are paying attention. But to their point, nuclear war is a threat because of Russia not doing so well in its invasion of Ukraine. And if Putin gets, uh, you know, desperate, then that's a threat. Climate change, once again, we know that that is a real threat, not just in America, but around the world. So misinformation, it, misinformation in the way that, you know, Twitter under its new ownership, misinformation is starting to really um, just go wild rampant on that on that social media site and many others. So if it takes um, a weird quarter of a clock um, unveiling um, to get people to start paying attention to that stuff, then so be it. Because I do think we should be paying attention. I agree entirely with you that we should be paying attention, but it's not a paying attention clock. It is not like, oh, man, we got problems clock. It is we are seconds from total annihilation and existential erasure on the planet clock. That's how they bill it. And misinformation isn't leading to that. The threat from nuclear war is coming entirely from Putin. And the people who are listening to these people aren't in Moscow. And look, climate change is real and it's a problem. But the timeline by all the experts who are most passionate about it is very different than like uh, nuclear war tomorrow. It is, mm. and maybe telling everybody that we are seconds from the apocalypse, which is what so much of Twitter and social media does already, is part of the problem, right? Because it keeps everybody in this state of panic. And if you tell a whole generation of kids, the world's ending tomorrow anyway, that's not a way to get people to be productive contributors to society, you know, to build a social movement, to build a political movement. It is basically saying, well, we're all dead tomorrow. Let's just go have fun. I feel like well, people are living like that anyway. But that's a problem. But I also generationally think that a lot of people don't even know what the doomsday clock yes. is, honestly. Um, and if we actually polled, you know, the voting population, I would air that more than 50% are unfamiliar with it and what it's supposed to have, real impact it's supposed to have. Well, true. they would know reality shows about doomsday preppers because we all have to binge watch something every now and then. <laughs> Thank you very much. And as you heard from Jonah here, apparently doomsday clock is the reason for quiet quitting. <laughs> Everyone, a wild police chase in Wisconsin with a very dramatic ending. And the most shocking part, the wife of the car's owner was actually inside. She was asleep when the car was stolen. The details on the brink next. All right, try to imagine what you would do if this happened to you. Picture it. You're asleep in the backseat of your own car. Your husband has just stepped out when a stranger jumps into the car and then steals it, sparking a wild police chase. This happened to a woman in Wisconsin earlier this month, and the whole thing was caught on dash cam video. Michelle Beck of our affiliate WMTV has more. Shown from three different cameras, this is the 4 a.m. chase to find the driver later identified as Kyle Wagner. He's accused of driving away on January 14th in someone else's car. In the back seat was a woman who woke up to the high-speed ride. This is her call for help. 
I was in a gas station. My husband just get out from the car. The victim told dispatch she doesn't know where she is. You can hear her talking with Wagner. Okay, no, no, I'm not telling anything because I'm really scared. You know, you should get back. Please, no. No, you are not. No, you are not running around. According to a criminal complaint, the victim said Wagner told her he was a truck driver and there was a conspiracy people wanted to kill them, so he was saving her. Why you take the car from the, from, from the gas station? Who's following us? My husband, of course it's my car. The deputy behind the squad car footage is cited in court documents. He details how Wagner drove at about 90 miles an hour and on the wrong side of traffic. That is until a state patrol car used a chase tactic to cause the car to crash into a guardrail. Watch as the car lifted into the air and airbags exploded. The victim came out first from the back seat, crying. No I was scared. I don't know I who's this were. guy. Who's this guy? <laughs> Officers then took the 51-year-old man from New York into custody. After admitting he used fentanyl and meth within 24 hours, Wagner now faces multiple felony charges. Michelle Beck of Affiliate WMTV, thank you so much. I want to bring in CNN National Security Analyst Juliet Kayam. This is really unbelievable. Think yeah. This is like a, a horrible scenario to happen. Thank God the woman is okay. But what is your reaction? What should she have done? I mean, she called 911. She stayed on the, yeah. on the phone talking calmly while this was a 90-mile-per-hour high-speed chase. Was that the right approach? Oh, absolutely. And I should we should put this isn't just one incident, the increase in carjackings for people who look at sort of the harms that are occurring in some areas have increased 50 percent. Uh, that is also related to covid. More people are home. These are these are uh, the taking of property. Many of these people do not want to encounter people. And so they're not going into homes. So carjackings are increasing. And this fluke or co coincidence of that she's actually in the car, she did exactly uh, she kept her calm relatively. She was called for help uh, and 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 uh, tried to get out of that situation in the best way she could. So this is actually a national phenomenon with this twist that we're showing here, uh, which is, of course, someone was in the car. It is a reminder that when we look at th this kind of uh, crime, uh, uh, locked, locked doors, uh, windows up, and not leaving people in cars is, is it's like so fundamentally obvious, but nonetheless something that uh, uh, should be reminded when people worry about this thing, there's a lot of quick fixes that we can put into place. I mean, it's interesting the way you frame it, the idea of talking about um, the types of crimes post-pandemic, the idea of, of having not, not a victimless crime, but a property-based crime, physical yeah. connection with drugs as well. I mean, are, you, are we seeing a reaction from law enforcement to better prepare, especially given the interaction with drugs in this country as well? That's right. So, and in some of these cases, you're seeing the, the ones that, that we're looking at, you're seeing sort of fentanyl and other sort of uh, 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 drugs that are causing this kind of behavior. I don't want to blame it on one particular drug, drug but this is uh, a situation in which the combination of mental health issues, drugs, and then also the desire for property crime, actually not encounter anyone is, is the elevated threat right now. Police departments are responding, just looking online right now. You can even see the, a lot more education to the public about just these basic precautions. This is nothing to, you know, these are things that are happening. We're a large country it's, and it's a phenomenon that people need to address. 
but it is something that is also we're aware of why it's happening right now. We're home more. And a lot of these people don't want to encounter people. They just want the property to resale or find out what's in the car. Unbelievable. I'm so glad this yeah. woman is safe. Juliet Kayam, thank you so much for your expertise on this and so many other topics. We'll be right back. Well, Disney World is officially closing down Splash, Splash Mountain this week after two years after announcing the cult favorite ride would close. That announcement stemming from growing complaints about the theme of the attraction, centering around the 1946 film Song of the South, a movie widely criticized for being racist. Now, the park is retheming the ride based on Disney's first black princess, Princess Tiana. Disney still has Splash Mountain rides, of course, at two other parks. Back with me now, Jonah Goldberg, Ashley Allison, and Tia Mitchell. We'll save the Who Rides Roller Coaster discussion for another day. <laughs> but the idea here that this is being um, revamped, the idea of looking into the reasons why, the, the connection, what do you make of it? I think this is a simple solution to a problem that has gone on for way too long. You ride roller coasters, particularly Splash Mountain, because you can get wet. It's a water ride in a hot... Uh, day at the park and it's a fun roller coaster you don't need racial undertones you don't need um glamorizing slavery remove the decor save the fun with the ride they don't need to be packaged together what do you say yeah i I agree so disney has been trying to distance itself from song of the south it's not accessible in any official channels um Past CEOs have said, you know, it's offensive. They're they're not going to release it on DVD, for example. But yet they still had this ride at its theme parks that is directly connected to characters from the movie. So I think they said, you know, if we're really going to distance ourselves from Song of the South, then we've got to let go of this really popular, really fun ride that is associated with the movie. And I think that's the, the smart thing to do is to repurpose it so you can still have the the log ride fun without the undertones of a movie that's from its inception was considered racist. And maybe some aren't aware of the connection or did not realize it in some way, but there is a petition to save it on change.org. They've got over 99,000 signatures. Again, by the way, it's not going, not being destroyed. It's just being repurposed in some way. But it says that modifying the ride will only encourage, quote, the easily offended. Thoughts? <sighs> I think they should give the animatronic stuff from it to, like, the Smithsonian, so, like, there's some historical memory of it. But this is a private company that cares about its own brand, and that I think we can stipulate that the overwhelming majority of people who love this ride don't love it for the racism, right? So, like, uh, it's the right thing to do, save the fun parts of it, and um, uh, no one has a right to, you know, like... the people who are complaining about those who are easily offended are the ones who are being easily offended by this, <laughs> is the way I'd put it. Well, I do wonder what's going to happen. This is in Florida, of course. We already know there was that brewing feud between Disney and Governor Ron DeSantis about the tax um, advantages. And this is a, a bit of a different connotation here now of them being proactive as a company. We'll see what happens. And, of course, it's coming back. And I like Tiana. So there you go, everyone. Everyone, thank you for watching. Our coverage does continue. And no, I won't break out into song. 
Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.